I just had a theme, furious love. Well, I just really felt uh, the Lord put a word on my heart tonight about loving people back to life. How many of you love to be loved? How many just absolutely awesome to know love, to feel love? Because I know what it's like to not feel loved. I know what it's like to feel suicidal. I know what it's like to be raised in a single parent family by a solo dad. As one of the early solo families, as a teenager growing up without my mum being there because she had to, she had to leave my dad for various reasons. She had to go and provide for the family and, and go and live somewhere else. I know what it's like to feel broken. I know what it's like to try and get love from other places. I know what it's like to try and fill that love void up with drugs and alcohol and sex and all the wrong kind of stuff because when we have love missing in our hearts, we do all sorts of things to try and fill that void. Is that true? And the world's a crazy place out there. It's a crazy place because everybody needs love. Everybody needs to experience love. They need to know. And the Bible says God is love. And when you meet God in a genuine way, all of a sudden you realize you've got love like you've never experienced it before. And that's what happened to me at the age of 20 years old. God encountered me in my flat. And I felt the warm glow of, a, of an encounter with a living God that I never even knew existed. And he radically changed my life. And so I want to, um, tonight, if you're here, I'm, I'm probably going to have to keep you guys awake tonight through a bit of a challenge uh, that the Lord's placed upon my heart. The, the word I've got tonight is not a flowery word. It's a challenging word. And we need to be challenged, all of us, uh, what to do with this love that he's given to us. Jesus said this to his disciples, freely you have received, freely you are to give, give, give. You've got a theme next Sunday of generosity. Generosity is all about learning how to release out of your life the good stuff that God's put in there. And so we're going to do that. So I'm just going to pray. Father, I just pray right now for the authority and the mantling of the Holy Spirit in this place. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would not only, Lord, bring the word of truth, but you would bring, Lord, a dividing line between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, discerning the very thoughts and intents of every heart in this place. I pray the power of my words, Lord, tonight would be, Lord, filled and empowered by the Spirit of God. That, Lord, it would not be myself, but as I submit to you and hide myself in you, Jesus, there would come something powerful out of my mouth tonight, Lord, that as we receive and as we hear, you would change us from the inside out. We ask this tonight. Speak to every heart, every life that's here under the sound of this meeting and also on audio Tonight we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. At approximately 3.20 a.m. on March the 13th, 1964, about seven, eight months before I was born, now you know how old I am if you're any good at maths, a youngster, thank you, sir, you're my best friend. Awesome. Let me shout your coffee afterwards. 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was returning home to her nice middle-class area of Queens, New York. She parked her car in a nearby parking lot. She turned off the lights and started walking to her second-floor apartment some 35 yards away, not very far at all. She got as far as the streetlight. When a man grabbed her, she screamed, 
Lights went on in the 10-floor apartment building nearby. She yelled, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Windows opened in the apartment building and a man's voice shouted, Let that girl alone. The attacker looked up, shrugged and walked off down the street. Ms. Genevieve struggled to get to her feet. Lights went back on and off, back off in the apartments. The attacker came back and stabbed her the second time. She cried out, I'm dying, I'm dying. And again the lights came on, the windows opened in many of the nearby apartments. The assailant left, got into his car and drove away. Ms. Genevieve staggered to her feet as a city bus drove by. It was now 3.35 a.m., 15 minutes since the first time she was assaulted. The attacker returned once again. He found her in a doorway at the foot of the stairs and he stabbed her a third time, this time with fatal consequence. It was 3.50 when the police received the first call. They responded quickly and within two minutes they were at the scene and Mrs. Genovese was already dead. Taken from the New York Times, March 27th, 19. 64. Kitty Genovese became a name that was symbolic in the public mind of North America for the dark side of national character. You guys hear me okay out there? All right. It would stand for Americans who were too indifferent or frightened or too alienated or too self-absorbed to get involved in helping a fellow human being who was in dire trouble. Listen to this, guys. Detectives investigating her murder discovered that no fewer than 38, 38 of her neighbours had witnessed at least one of her killers' three attacks, but neither came to her aid nor called the police. The one call made to the police came after she was already dead. And she became symbolic of the second half of the 20th century, of the apathy that exists in urban city living, of people who are in genuine need and yet nobody actually did anything about it. And that's what I want to talk to us about tonight. Because Jesus shared an equally shocking story, not to the point of death, and many Bible historians believe the story that we're going to look at tonight was not a fictional story, but rather a true account of something that happened because Jesus never called it a parable. He began to tell a story. And all the facts of the story line up with uh, the historian's account of what took place in the story that Jesus told. So I'm going to begin reading tonight from Luke 10. I've got some scriptures for you up on screen tonight so that you can look at them and just follow along. Jesus begins talking in response to a certain lawyer, verse, 10, uh, verse 25, who stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus spoke to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And secondly, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. 
But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want to ask the question tonight, why did the lawyer, this guy's a lawyer, another name for this guy is scribe. And a scribe was somebody who was an expert who knew the first five Bibles, books of the Bible off by heart. He could quote any verse out of the whole of the first five, but they're big books. Have you ever taken a look at them? They're big books. That's a lot of memorizing. He knew the Bible off by heart. And the Bible says here that he's asking Jesus the question because he's full of religion. He's full of knowing all about it, but not doing it. And religion stinks in the nostrils of God. God hates religion. And let me tell you this, those that don't know Christ, they can smell religion a mile away. They hate inauthenticity. They hate pretenders. They hate pretense. The world hates hypocrisy. If you say you're a Christian, they want to meet a real Christian. They want to meet somebody that will follow through on what they say they believe in. That's what a real Christian is. And so this man, the Bible tells us, unveils the motives of why he asked the question. It says, because he asked it because he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to pin a medal on his chest and say, I'm a big know-it-all. I know all about the Bible. And, uh, and when Jesus, when he responded and said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's the first and greatest commandment, right? The second commandment, likened to it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he felt he was doing pretty good with loving God. And so he wanted to go the second mile and see what Jesus' definition, because he, he couldn't measure himself on how he was loving his neighbor until he knew what it said. Did that mean the person living next door? Did that mean the shopkeeper down the road? What did loving his neighbor mean? And so he asked the second time the question, uh, and what he was really asking was, who and how much do I have to love? And you see, that's what religion often does. And we can be like that. We can try and reduce down Jesus' words so that we can kind of feel smug and feel like we're doing it and we're on the cutting edge. And that's, that's why this guy began to uh, ask this question. Because all of us would like to believe that loving my neighbor is a pretty easy thing to do. And it's easy as long as people love you back. What about when you keep doing stuff and you keep pouring out your life to somebody and there's no response back to you. You see, it's easy to love people who love us back. And Jesus was making a point, And so he carries on verse 30 of the story. Then Jesus answered and said, and here's the story he tells that's gone right around the world for 2,000 years. It's been one of the paramount stories that defines what God's love really means for all of us. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, the priest is like the senior pastor and the Levite's like the associate pastor in today's terms. Likewise, a Levite, he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn 
and took care of them. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come back, I will repay you. So Jesus says to the scribe who's asked him the questions, listen to this, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he replied, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Bless the reading of your word tonight, Lord. This parable shows us that we can treat people in at least three different ways tonight. The first group of people we often think about in this story is we go straight to the priest. But the first group of people in this story are the thieves or the robbers. And the robbers saw this man as prey. He saw him as prey. His attitude was, what is yours is mine and I'm going to take it from you. I'll say that again. The robber's attitude was, what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it from you. He was motivated by greed. The Bible says, when the robbers saw the man, they robbed him, stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Whether the man lived or died, it wasn't their concern. They did not value this man's life. They only saw him as something to get from him. And I'm afraid to say, friends, that the world is de-escalating rapidly into a society that doesn't value people. You'll see it in every strata of society, right from young people all the way through. Everybody uses everybody else because they're only concerned about what I get out of it for me. So we live in this consumer-generated society that's all about me and all about what I can get from you, getting the most from you for the least amount of effort. Hello. We don't have to walk very far and have a good look around to see that's happening. It's sometimes like what I heard once, the property law of a young child. You know the property law of a young child is? If you've ever had young children, you'll know exactly what I'm about to tell you. Here's the property law of a child. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's still mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like it's mine, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it is mine. And if it's yours and I steal it, it's mine. You see, and what we actually do is we grow up into an adult version of that. And society's filled with this competitive thing that's going around where everybody is saying, what can I get out of this? If I can't get anything out of it, then I'm not going to have anything to do with it. We want to see gain in everything we do. And sometimes we even seek to make a profit at somebody else's expense. And it really doesn't matter if that person lives or dies as long as I'm doing okay and I'm getting what I want from life. What about the second group of people in this story? We'll call them the religious people. 
the religious people, the people who knew how to read the Bible, the people who went to church every week, the people that prayed. Does it sound familiar to anyone here today? That could be describing me. That could be describing you today. And the religious people saw this person as the man who was robbed. They saw him as trouble to avoid. Their attitude is, what is mine is mine and I'm going to keep it from you. Hello. What is mine is mine and I'm going to keep it from you. They were motivated and they were driven by selfishness. The Bible says both the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. And many say perhaps they were busy, they were on their way to do temple duty because the priests and the Levites, they looked after God's house. They looked after the temple. They had duties to perform. They had things that they, they had to get to work on time and make sure that all of the work in God's house was a bit like coming to church on a Sunday and somebody gets a flat tire. And you just drive past them and wave as you're on your way to church because I've got to get to church on time. And so here were these uh, two men, uh, except the Bible specifically says in the story that the men, the priests and the Levites, came down. And you, what you need to understand is the geography of Israel, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's a road that goes down hundreds of feet in elevation. So these men weren't on their way to the temple. They were leaving work. They were on their way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe they understood that in the law, it said that if you touch a dead body, then you are unceremonially unclean for at least a week. That means that you have no contact with any other human beings for seven days. Can you imagine the inconvenience of that for you today? that you're not allowed to have any contact with another human being for a whole week. So maybe they were thinking, man, this is in the too hard basket. If I go and touch this guy and he dies, then I'm not going to be able to mix or mingle with anybody else for seven days. What an inconvenience to my life. Perhaps. Well, we see, we see very clearly here that the Levite, when he came along, at least he stopped. The Bible says he came and he looked. It's the first incident of rubbernecking that we see in the Bible. Have you ever been past an accident? And did you know that the police say that accidents are the worst spot for other accidents to happen? Do you know why? Because we're all rubbernecking. We're all looking around like this, seeing. We're so curious, we want to see what's going on. Did anybody die? And we're all looking like this. So the Levite, at least he came, and the Bible says, and he looked. But then he went and passed by on the other side. So he didn't do anything about it either. And like Kitty Genevieve's neighbors, the first two passers-by probably just didn't want to get involved. They didn't want any trouble. They weren't monsters, so to speak, but they just didn't want the extra hassle that it would present in order to use their time, their resources, to go and help this man that was on the side of the road. And I'm afraid, friends, that's what religion does. Religion doesn't actually help people. Religion is built on pride. Religion is built on selfishness. Religion is built on more, I'm doing this for what it does for me, than what it does for other people. 
Charles Swindoll says this in a book he wrote called The Quest for Character. He said this, Rare indeed are those people who give of themselves with little regard for recognition, personal benefit, or monetary returns. For some reason, Charles Swindle writes, we are slowly eroding into a people that gauges every request for involvement from the viewpoint, what do I get out of it, and how can I get the most for the least? The world calls this philosophy, am I my brother's keeper? Do you remember in the Bible, God came looking for Abel, and he comes to Cain, and Cain says to God, Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I supposed to be looking out for the welfare of my brother? Yes, you are. If you're a proper Christian, yes, you are supposed to be looking out for the welfare of other people. You see, friends, we were put on earth to make a contribution, not to consume resources. And God says, if you want to really know what the meaning of loving people is, you love people by serving others. You love people by helping others. You love people by not passing by on the other side of the road, but actually doing something about it. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship. That means he's created us. But look at this. Created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I truly believe this. Every day you and I wake up. Every day you and I get out of bed God has prepared something good for you to do to other people. That you can actually display God's love and you can be a vessel used by God by those good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do to get stuck in when that opportunity presents itself. And I truly believe that every day, if you will look for it, friends, if you will look for it, there is an opportunity for you to get involved. I'll never remember, I'll never forget I'll never forget when, when we were in our young 20s. We were just married. We were living in a very small country town. And I remember one day my wife was walking outside on the footpath of our house. And there was an old lady that walked past and she just stopped. And she began talking to my wife. And she kind of looked funny. She sounded funny. And my wife began asking her a few questions. And she said, she told her that she had just been released into the community from Lake Alice Mental Psychiatric Hospital. And we were living in that country town at the same time that the government was saying it's getting too expensive for us to look after these psychiatric patients. We're going to release them into halfway homes in the community. And everybody in the community went into an uproar. We're going to have these psychos living next door to us. They couldn't bear the thought that dangerous people might be living next to them. And I can understand that. I had a young family. But Viv told me that the first time she met this woman, she couldn't believe the stench. And she realized that she hadn't bathed. She realized that she hadn't had a shower. And Viv began to befriend her. She was 69 years old and she was living with her 53-year-old boyfriend. And both of them were psychiatrically impaired. What a couple. I tell you. They were crazy, literally. But they didn't have anyone to care for them. They had slipped through the gaps. And I always remember I went round there to visit her one day. And she said, oh, pastor, would you like a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah, I'd love a cup of coffee. And she went and got this cup. 
that looked like it had been sitting up on the mantel for three weeks and it had mold growing in it. And she got the cup, she put the coffee straight into it without washing it, poured the hot water and she said, there you go, Pastor, there's your cup. And uh, so I just, I said, thanks a lot. What was your name, honey? Mary, Mad Mary. <laughs> and so I had a couple of sips and then she, she quickly went into the uh, toilet. And while she was in the toilet, I opened the window and, thanks, Mary, that was a great cup of coffee. A little, little bit of deception from the pastor doesn't go astray every now and again. And as we began to befriend them, we suddenly realized that there was something wrong. And I can remember one day I came home from the office and Viv said to me, my wife said to me, you'll never believe what happened today. And I said, what happened, honey? And she said, Mary came round and she said to me, would you cut my hair? My wife's never cut anyone's hair in all of her life. And so she had compassion and she said, sure, I'll cut your hair. She said, come inside my house. She took her inside the house and as she was getting ready to cut her hair, she smelt this terrible stench. And as she began to, she brought her into the bathroom and she wanted to have a closer look. And she pulled her hair up and her ear was all going gangrene and had been infected and it was all filled with pus and and her skin was rotting. She said it nearly made her gag. And Viv got out the disinfectant. She took her into the bathroom. She bathed her. She washed her. She washed her hair. And then she said to her, how long have you had this, Mary? And Mary said this. You won't believe this. Mary said this to her. She said, I went to the doctor, but the doctor said there was nothing wrong with me. And Viv said, which doctor was this? Her Māori warrior spirit began to emerge. I tell you, don't mess with the mama. Don't mess with the mama. The mama was being messed with. And uh, Viv found out what doctor it was. And plain and simple, friends, the doctor had actually seen her wound and hadn't done anything about it. And we made a complaint to the medical society about that doctor. We made sure that she got treatment. You see, friends, everybody needs somebody to love them. And we can be just like the priest and the Levite. We can be all talk and no show. And that's what Jesus was saying. He was pointing out that these two uh, these two Jewish men wouldn't even go to the aid of their Jewish brother who was in the ditch half dead and what made it worse if you understand the history of the times when Jesus said that a Samaritan man stopped to help you need to understand that Samaritans and Jews were at war with each other they hated each other it's like it's like this Croats and the Serbs of the 90s, the war that went on there, of racial prejudice, that the Jews and the Samaritans had a racial prejudice war. And so Jesus was pouring coals of fire on their head when he was saying that a Samaritan man, the Jews weren't prepared to stop, they were religious people, and this non-religious man was prepared to stop and help somebody who was perceived as the enemy. So the Samaritan man, he saw... And this man who had been robbed and beaten, a person who needed to be loved. His attitude was this, what is mine is yours and I'm going to share it with you. What is mine is yours and I'm going to share it with you. He was driven by compassion. He was going to love this man back to life. 
And I'm going to finish just on a few points regarding compassion because the Bible says that when he saw the man, he was moved by compassion. When he saw the man, he was moved by compassion. The same word that the Bible teaches that Jesus was moved by through his whole ministry, where the Bible says, and Jesus saw the crowds, and the Bible says he was moved by compassion. The word in the Greek, this word compassion in the Greek, is actually the word that talks about your innermost intestines around the bowel area. And what it actually means is that same thing. You've heard the expression, that gut feeling. That gut feeling. This compassion is something that literally moves us on the inside where we are so emotionally swayed and moved by what we see that we can no longer pass by on the other side. We've actually got to do something about what we are seeing. You see, here's a few statements about compassion tonight. Compassion feels something. It always feels something. It has that stirring. It has that ability to trouble us so we can't get to sleep until we actually do something with the feeling that we're getting in our gut and our innermost being when we experience true biblical compassion. It keeps us awake at night. And when that Samaritan man looked at the suffering man by the road, something happened in his gut. Something made it impossible for him to walk away. He couldn't just walk away anymore. He had to help this guy. Next, compassion doesn't just feel, it actually does something. Compassion does something. It has actions to it. He went and bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He set him on his donkey. He brought the man to a motel. He took care of him. You see, to move on compassion, you actually have to move toward people and build a relationship with them. You can't love people from afar. You've got to get up close and personal. And I can always remember when I was at college, I wasn't always as big as what I was. I was a midget when I was in the third form at college. And I had fiery red hair. I think they call it a ginger these days. I was a true ginger. Red hair and freckles. Fiery red hair. And I had the personality to match. Let me tell you, if anybody tried to tease me, tried to bully me, didn't matter how big they were, I can remember a fourth former when I was a turd in the third form. I can remember him. He used to come. It was his, he considered it his duty every day to place me in a headlock and just begin to beat my skull until I couldn't stand it any longer. And one day I had enough. And he was a big guy. And I was a little guy. So I just pretended that as he'd had enough and he let me go, that uh, as he let me go, I planned it all. And in one swift move, I gave him the best uppercut I could manage right under the jaw. And I want to tell you, that was a victory for me that day. It didn't matter that he took me into the music room for the next half hour and he pummeled me into a pulp. And he left that room furious while I was pummeled in the corner, still smiling, looking back at him, because I got one back on that day. Can somebody say amen to that? (laughs) You see, let me tell you another story 
that happened a number of years ago. We were down at the Mount Beach because we used to pastor a church in Tauranga. And uh, being the man that I was, I'd done my manly duties and I'd picked up the chili bin, I'd picked up the deck chairs, I'd picked up uh, the blankets and I was carrying them all down to the beach and I'd taken the kids with me. And Viv was back at the car collecting a final few other things. And we were in a big car park there at the Mount Beach and, uh, and as I'd just gone over the rise, a little old woman was in her Austin Morris 1300 and she was trying to exit the car park. She couldn't see very well. I think some of her coordination had probably disappeared. And so she was revving the heck out of that little car, inching back one or two inches at a time. One or two inches at a time. And I mean, if I was there, I probably would have just gently smiled to myself and thought, get on you, girl. That's the way to go. But you know what happened? All these young guys thought that this would be an object of sport for them that day. About six of them. And they all gathered around this little old lady's car as she's trying to inch and drive back not to hit any other cars and began banging and slamming the roof of her car and jeering and hissing at this woman. She was petrified. She didn't know what to do. And I told you not to mess with the mama. The mama, Mama Viv, my wife, she saw what was going on and she marched up to these big six strapping young guys and she said, what do you think you are doing? And these six young guys have been drinking. And you never normally should approach young guys when they've been drinking. Just like you should never normally approach half-dead bodies lying in the ditch who have been whipped and beaten. Because you see, many people say, well, that was a very dangerous road. History says that that road was called the road of blood. Because all the way from the road to Jerusalem to Jericho is full of rocky outgoings and where bandits would hide. And then they would come. And so people say, well, those guys shouldn't have stopped because they would put themselves in danger because those same guys that robbed and beat this man could be waiting just over the hill. And if we went to help them, then we might get whipped and we might get beaten. But you see, true compassion always does something. Even at the threat of danger or harm to yourself. And Mama Viv walked up to these guys and she took the attention off the old lady, good on her, but all of a sudden the attention went on her. And all these guys began to leave the circle of the car and move in on my wife. You ever heard of black angels? A black angel visited her that day. A big Samoan guy walked over the sand dune as they began to move towards my wife. And he yelled out, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And these six young guys just splat the scene. And disappeared. You see, God doesn't want us to be so filled with spiritual pride that we're not prepared to do something about it. And I know that, you know, in my time at school, because of the way that I looked and because of the way that I was and because I get so fiery, that people would just pick on me. You guys probably know many people in your schools that are bullied every day. Do you ever help them? Do you ever actually do something? Because I want to tell you something, kids that go through school all their life and are bullied, they come out of school emotional basket cases because they think everybody hates them. 
And they just think that they're the laughing stock. Well, I want to tell you with you as a Christian, if you can walk alongside of those people and you can begin to tell them how much Jesus loves them and that you'll stick up for them the next time somebody comes along to bully them, the next time somebody comes along to make fun at them, that you're there because you really do believe that you can make a difference in their life. Can you give me an amen tonight, young people? So you see, compassion always does something. It always costs us something. And as I finish tonight, I want to ask you this question. These guys in the Bible, the priest and the Levite, they knew a lot. Do you know Paul the Apostle said, knowledge puffs up. Or knowledge, having lots of knowledge makes a person proud. You see, it's not an issue of how much we know, it's an issue of what are we doing with what we know. What are we doing with what God has given to us? Did you know when we all face the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be judged on how much knowledge you've collected. You're going to be judged on what you did with the little or the lot that you know in terms of carrying out Jesus' command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, but to love your neighbor as you love yourself tonight. And I believe tonight that God wants to give everybody here as we approach him, as you see, there's a, there's a way and a manner of approaching God. You can't approach God any old way. That's why the whole of the Old Testament is filled with regulations and filled with rituals about how we approach God. If you really ever want something from God, fear God. Revere God. Not in a religious way. But there is a time to have lots of fun and there's a time to approach God in such a way that he sees the motivation of your heart that you've truly got a soft heart towards him. That you truly have a heart that is genuine towards God. God can smell hypocrisy a mile away too. Who were Jesus' biggest enemies in the New Testament? They were the religious people. Jesus got them mad all the time. They would come at him and he'd just answer them with a question and they'd get so mad they'd want to kill him. And so tonight I believe this. I believe that God wants to give us a baptism of love tonight. Let me make an admission to you that there's been many times where I've seen human need and I've said to myself, I can't stop. I'm too busy. It would be too much of an inconvenience. And you know, I should have learnt my lesson because I can tell you lots of other stories tonight about both myself and my wife over the time that we've served Jesus where we have stopped at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, where we have done something practical that sometimes has changed the whole future direction of a person's life. And tomorrow, when you get up, there are good works prepared for every single one of you to do. But the issue is going to be not how much knowledge you have, but the issue is going to be, will you allow compassion to move you to do something with what you see? Will you be prepared to actually put yourself sometimes in harm's way, within reason, friends? I'm not talking about being an idiot. I'm not talking about placing yourself genuinely in harm's way. When the SWAT team needs to be called in, let the police call in the SWAT team. Don't try and take on the situation on your own. You know what I'm saying tonight. But there's many situations where tomorrow you can make a difference. Could we stand together this evening? Could I just have the musicians to come? And as they come, could we just ask tonight... 
that every heart would just take a moment to reflect. What has the Lord been saying to you?